Hi, you guys. This is Liz Ryan, and this is episode 16 of the Truth About Work podcast. I'm going to talk about a question, interview question, uh, that there's been a lot of conversation about. Some started by me, and some I've just been reading on LinkedIn and Twitter and wherever. And it's the interview question, why do you want this job? Super common question to get at a job interview. And I take exception to it. Hate this question. You know why? Because it comes out of the frame or mental model that when you come to an interview as a job candidate, you already know you want the job. That's ridiculous, of course. You come to an interview to learn more. Now, you probably haven't concluded you definitely don't want the job or you wouldn't come to the interview, but it's beyond presumptuous to ask someone, why do you want the job? just because they show up at an interview to learn more about the company and to meet the hiring manager. We wouldn't like it if a candidate said, so what made you decide you want to hire me? Or why do you want to hire me? We would say, we, we don't know if we want to hire you. There's a bunch of people we need to talk to. Okay, same exact thing in reverse. And this is why we don't want to ask a candidate, why do you want to work here? Yeah, you can ask what interested you in in the job ad that we ran but you know by the same token you should then tell them here's what interested us in your resume here's what it is you guys it's very obvious the minute you kind of get distance from this from the actual words and the question why do you want this job it's a power question it's an unequal power dynamic in the question the assumption is the frame the mental model is that the candidate came to the interview to dance and prance for our amusement like on America's Got Talent or Poland's Got Talent or Korea or wherever. I think they got that show everywhere now. But that's not what the interview is. It's a mutual fact-finding and, and question asking and listening and selling process, okay? You would not want to bring somebody in to interview for a job unless you're willing to sell them as hard on the job as they sell you on hiring them. And if our assumption is as a hiring manager or a recruiter or an interviewer that the candidate has to do all the work to say, hire me, hire me, we've made a grave error. And we have to really look at not only our recruiting process, but our mindset too, because that is fear-based, right? It's fear-based. It's saying, I must be in control of this. I must be the top dog, I must be the decision maker, or I will not feel okay about me, myself. I need that. I need that power and control. I got so lucky because my boss, my CEO, Casey at US Robotics, and actually even before him, my boss, John Brady, who put me in HR way back in the Cindy Lauper versus Madonna for control of the airwaves era, right? Just remembering going to clubs and dancing all the time in Chicago <laughs> back then. Both of them told me the same thing. Go get amazing people. Our company's trying to grow and it relies on getting amazing people. Get them in here. Get them in here. So it's an inviting in process, recruiting is. It's not a weeding out. How's that a business process? Imagine if you had a purchasing manager in your company responsible for buying nuts and bolts or raw materials or office staplers or anything. And you said, now I want you to talk to 600 vendors 
and use a very detailed and precise process for winnowing that list down to three. How, why would we pay to have that done? How does that add value to the company? Nobody would say, oh, it's a better process because you started out with 600 prospective vendor candidates and ended up with three. That's dumb, right? We would say, go get the three, go find them. So it's the same way in recruiting. We're bringing people in. And, and for me personally, and, and the good recruiters I know, and if I can put myself in that club, it's going out. It's literally physically going out. Maybe not now, COVID-19 era, but meeting people and their friends and encouraging employees to bring in their friends, right? And talking to recruiters, uh, uh, vendors, um, you know, third-party recruiting firms and individuals and talking to pipeline people. That means company, uh, universities and uh, workforce development centers and everybody, everybody. I was out and about at the library doing job search uh, workshops for job seekers and meeting people, meeting people, meeting people, connecting with organizations. I, I mean, the thing is that if you create a culture of this kind of welcoming recruiting, trying to help the company grow by having pipelines and relationships everywhere. Managers know they need talent and they want to, you know, fill their job openings and they want to get great people. And if you create a culture of welcoming and invitation kind of based recruiting, for the most part, they will go along with it. Obviously, everybody's an individual and some people are very finicky. Some hiring managers, very specific about their needs, fear-based again. Okay. Right? We all have it. I'm not exempting myself from this fear thing, right? It's omnipresent. It's out there, right? We all run into it. But when somebody says, I have to have these 16 bullet points, I won't talk to anybody that doesn't have all 16 of them. You say, okay, you know what? We got to talk because if you really insist on that, you know, I might want to introduce you to a vendor, a third-party recruiter. You can pay a fee, 25% of the new hire's first year salary, and I'll certainly facilitate the interviews, but I don't have time, I can't. I, my time, my team is a finite resource. We have to work with the hiring managers that are more interested in getting a great person in here than necessarily clerically, right? Quantitatively matching bullet points. It's so stupid, you know it is. You have to have a degree. You have to have this certification. You have to have those, don't be ridiculous. The worst is the years of experience. Two years of experience with Excel. What does it even mean? Two years continuously in a jail cell working with Excel, right? Probably not. Two years since I heard about it and used it the first time and then two years elapsed? Eh, no, it's dumb. What have you done with Excel? One person could do in three months what someone else would take years to accomplish. Know what I'm saying? Let's just be smart. We know how human beings are wired and how they work. So we're gonna reinvent recruiting in the shape of people, right? I just wrote a book about that. It might be top of mind for me. I just sent it to the publisher, book about recruiting for humans. It's so critically important on all sides of the equation, not just for candidates who are kind of tired of being dissed and dismissed in the standard recruiting process or disqualified for dumb reasons or just neglected or ghosted or spoken to rudely or asked dumb, insulting questions coming out of this outdated frame about vetting instead of wooing candidates. They're sick of all that, but it's also bad for companies. It's bad for all of us. Get those people in there, right? 
this idea that oh oh we have to you know we have to guard against the wrong person coming in here stop stop right this is this is a fearful mindset at its core so i got lucky cuz i worked for people who said go get the people in here get great people in here so i saw my job as bringing them in and when interviewing saying what do you want to know because I run a greater risk of losing you to a competitor for talent, which could be another employer. It could be grad school. It could be going to work for yourself or doing some business that you had in your mind. I don't know what it could be. It could be anything, right? I, I would kind of like to have you come and work here if possible. I'd like to at least keep selling you long enough to figure out if, you know, this is a good thing for you. And then, you know, along the way, is it a good thing for us? But I'm not going to turn you off the minute you come into the interview room by saying something mean and 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 power-based, which is, you know, fear-based, controlling and ick. Like, like, what would your last manager say about you? What a horrible question. Why would that per... Bosses are like regular people. They can be awesome. They can be idiots. They could be horrible. Why is your boss's opinion important? And why would you make me report to you? Oh, well, my last boss. Ew, you guys. No, we're not going to ask. Out of all the candidates, why should I hire you? What? Don't hire me. Live your life. Hire your mom. You know what I mean? It's just time to throw out the recruiting playbook and start over. We don't want to ask what's your greatest weakness. Mm, that needs its own whole rant at another occasion. But I wanted to start with this question. Why should we hire you? Because it's such a beautiful microcosm of what's broken broken in the recruiting mindset. Now, I know I'm, I get very detailed with this stuff, detailed, because it hits me viscerally. First time I heard that question, why do you want to work here? Why do you think this candidate wants to work here? They just came for an interview. That They just... They just think it's worth their time to go learn more. We wouldn't want them to ask us, why do you want to hire me? What made you decide to hire me? Wait, we've known you for eight seconds. We don't know if we want to hire you. Well, right. And they've known us for eight seconds and they don't know if they want to work here or not. It's a dumb question. Comes out of the wrong frame. This, this arch, I look down my nose at you, candidate, you sit on a lower level you know, in this relationship and sort of philosophically too, you need me to like you. Nah, I tell job candidates, you guys with all possible conviction and sincerity, you don't need people to like you. Look for the people who resonate at your frequency. And I like nothing better than to, to stay with a candidate and say, Hey, you know, you met me. It was a really cool conversation. I enjoyed it. Do you have questions? I want to answer your questions. And then I also want to introduce you to the hiring manager, Sal, over here, if that works for you. And we'll find a time for you and Sal to get together. Does that sound good? Do you have any questions for me? This is recruiting. I, I'm very lucky and grateful. I had bosses who said, if there's a partner, spouse, significant other, you would never obviously insert yourself in that but you say hey i'm happy to talk to whoever you want to have dinner let's have dinner that's how you recruit people i've had so many dinners with spouses it's comical why not if someone's relocating i'd want to know and not to be about like traditional gender roles but the number of times i've sat at dinner with a male candidate and their and their female spouse 
and had the spouse say, tell me about preschools, tell me about this, tell me about that. Not that men don't know about that stuff, but you know, sometimes moms want to dive in. I am only too happy. I'm too happy. And I've driven, you know, I would say millennials, but by now they're, they're older Gen Xers around uh, the city of Chicago, helping them find uh, look at neighborhoods, look at streets in, in places where I would never live because I was already, you know, suburban mom by then. But this is how you recruit, you guys. Go to colleges when you don't have job openings to meet the students and to support them and mentor them and talk with the career services people. That's how you recruit. It's longitudinal. It goes out over time. And you spread good energy out into the community so that when people think of of, of, you know, they need a job. They think of your company, right? You're not going to be able to hire everybody, obviously. And that's the hardest part of recruiting is saying, no, thank you. It's not a good match right now, but also still keeping the, the relationship going longitudinally and people will come back and work for you years later, or they'll leave and they'll come back again, or they won't come to work for you, but they'll send their friends to you because the energy is that good. When I started an online community for women in business and technology, a few years after I left the corporate world, I asked several um, ex-colleagues of mine, women, to lead local branches, local chapters of that online community, which also had face-to-face meetings as well. And a couple of them were folks that I met because the company that I worked for acquired the company they worked for, and we became co-workers by virtue of that merger, that acquisition. And, you know, they said, it's kind of funny, we're doing this online community project together now, and the way I know you is, you were running HR from the company that bought my company, and that can often be an icky and awkward relationship, or acrimonious, or difficult, and it, you know, it just wasn't. It's the same exact thing. Why? Why would anybody make that hard? It's already hard. It's wrenching. It's painful. Company's going to be bought. It's happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. Oh, everything we worked for is kind of going up in smoke. Why would you want to make that any harder than it has to be? And I had heard horrible stories by then of companies uh, acquiring other companies and literally saying, like, you can't wear the logo uh, sportswear, the T-shirts and the hats of the company you've been working for, you've been super loyal toward, uh, you've been part of their success. You can't wear this stuff after the acquisition. It's gone. It's like, who would be who would be so horrible? Who would be so evil? I don't want to laugh because it's real life, but so dumb, so dumb, so dumb. You're trying to drive people away, but what is it? Ego, fear. You get past that and you see recruiting, HR in general, leadership in general, but recruiting specifically as an opening up of energy and saying, you know, we're, we're trying to fill a bunch of positions, trying to talk to inquisitive, you know, smart, cool people like you and, you know, tell us how we're doing and what we need to do differently. It's so obvious. It's so easy, you guys, and it's free. It's a free, huge competitive advantage. I would say the only sustainable competitive advantage is, is people, of course, and People come for the culture or they stay for the culture. And I, I, you know, people said to me, hey, you know what about our technology? It's not super sophisticated. It's not the space shuttle. But 
I really like working here. So I'm hanging out a while longer. How happy was I? Thank you. Thank you for telling me that. And by the way, if we do something stupid, then tell me and we'll try to fix it. Ah, I remember. I remember one colleague of mine, engineer, research and development person, come into my office and say, hey, remember, Liz, when you said if we do something stupid, I should tell you about it so we can try to fix it? I said, okay, lay it on me. He goes, all right. We have a policy when you're away on business, when you're traveling and you're in a hotel, you can't watch a movie. The, poli the travel policy doesn't let us watch movies at all. I think he was in Las Vegas. He had been to Las Vegas and it was 14 bucks to rent a movie. I don't know what it was. It's back in the day. And I said, oh, okay. I didn't know that, but thank you for telling me that. He goes, yeah. And here's the crazy dumb part about that. The entire team that was at the, the trade show, I was there working my ass off. Unbelievable hours, exhaustion. I'm not such a people person. I'm talking to people all day long. It was a real extra effort away from home. You know, my family, my cat, whatever I'm away from. So I'm there and then a kind of a slap in the face. You can't watch a movie while the entire rest of the trade show team from the booth is out watching some crazy Las Vegas show that costs a gazillion dollars per person and having an insanely lavish dinner with alcohol and everything in the manner of teams that go to these trade shows. And I'm in my hotel room and the biggest irony is I can't watch a movie. I can't even, I can't get, you know, I can get dinner sent up, but I can't watch a movie. And I said, okay, help me with this because you're an engineer, what do we do? We're not gonna say everybody watch movies all day long in the hotel room whenever you travel because travel's already one of our biggest expenses and that you know is gonna not gonna help he said just just let the manager approve it he says say that in the policy if the team is going out for a sponsored dinner you know company dinner paid for by the, the highest ranking person which is what you want to do always of course highest ranking person pays um and you choose not to go to to you know, reflect, to meditate, to be alone, to get some peace and quiet, you can watch a movie. So that's what we did and had no problems ever after that. Everything doesn't have to be an algorithm, you guys. That's the squishy human part that makes work fun. Nobody wants to be treated like an algorithm. And, and the irony, I talk about this on Twitter sometimes, when your help is needed, work the weekend, stay late, do something extra, whatever, outside your job description, we find it very easy to say, oh, you know, help me out. You're so great. Thank you so much. You know, help me out. Help out the team. But when it comes time for an employee to want something, a day off or whatever, we tend to say, oh, you know, there's a policy. We can't make an exception. Hell yeah, you can make an exception. You can make, this is the whole idea of leading like a person and, and running a company like it's a human place. You can't have it both ways. Know what I'm saying? You can't have it both ways and say it's mechanical and it's algorithm based and everybody's treated the same. How stupid. Everybody's obviously not treated the same. The execs aren't treated the same. Right now, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook saying you can work from home for the duration, right? Until the sun burns out in 5 billion years, you can work from home now. So that means you can go wherever, but we reserve the right to get up in your own personal financial situation such that if you move to a lower cost of living area, we're gonna cut your pay. No, Mark, my sweetheart, my angel, baby boy, no. No, 
That's like saying that if they get a roommate, you're going to cut their pay. It is none of your business where someone lives if the job is 100% virtual. That is goofy and ridiculous. How dare you? How dare you think you have something to say about the, the uh, you know, supply side of somebody's, uh, somebody's financial situation? What? No, that's gross. That's so intrusive. You have executives who have multiple homes. Do you ever ask them where they're staying this month, this year, this quarter? Oh, no, sorry. You know, I know you have a home in Aspen and one in Los Altos and one in Dubrovnik. But, you know, the cost of living in Dubrovnik is just so much lower. Shut up, Mark Zuckerberg. Go sit down and get an HR leader who knows how people work. You want to open the door for any competitor of yours, and I mean competitor for talent, to just swoop in? And grab those people who are horrified, and rightly so, that you would think you have something to say about how they should be paid based on the cost of living where they live? What planet are you living on? Ugh. Now I'm all worked up, you guys. I better answer a question before we bail here. Dear Liz, I have an employee in my department who would like to be promoted, but I have literally no opportunities for her. I don't want to lose her. What do you recommend? Jane. Hey, Jane. What a beautiful question, Jane. You have no formal way to promote this employee. You have no way to formally acknowledge them in terms of their title, and I assume salary for the job they do. So your first number one is that you're honest about that. You say, look, I would love to keep you on this team, not the rest of your life necessarily, but you know, as long as you feel like you're learning and growing and this is the right place for you to be. So I would love to do that. Here's what I can do about your compensation, and you lay it out. When's their next performance review? When's their next opportunity to get a raise? If you already know it's going to be $0.75 cents or $1.40, you know, $6.18, whatever you know about that or, or what you think they can expect or what's typical, you know, lay it out and then tell them, here's what I can do in addition to that. You know, maybe there are other positions in the company. You could say, I would be happy to recommend you for another job in the company. Maybe there's a policy. They have to be in their first job a year or whatever. You clarify with them everything that you know about what, what is possible formally, a transfer, a promotion, a pay raise, a title change, all of that stuff. And certainly if there are things they can avail themselves of, like internal training or you know, external training or tuition reimbursement, of course, tell them about that. And then you say, so that's kind of the formal picture. And then here's just, you know, what I can do for you informally, if it's useful, if it would be helpful. You know, I would love your help with this project. And that would teach you this tool and let you kind of put your own stamp on the job and, you know, let you learn a new skill that you can take with you throughout your life and career. Or I would love to have you cross-train with Marissa and Jose and Zhao, and I would love to, to get that going. But you tell me, you tell me, what can I do for you within the limits of what I just explained that would make you feel like, you know, we appreciate you and we're giving you some latitude and some room to grow. Even if you leave the company in nine months because, you know, this was it and the end of the line in terms of the formal career growth, I, I want to do what I can in that time. Remember we were talking before about recruiting is longitudinal. It's kind of like recruiting is never done. 
someone comes to work for your company, you're still recruiting them, right? You're still trying to make it a great place to work so that they want to stay there. And by the same token, working people, your, your career planning and your career sort of outreach and awareness and taking charge and being the CEO of your career, likewise, that's never done. We don't want to shut it down because you got a job. Oh, phew, I got a job. I don't have to think about my career. Oh, my sweetheart, you better, you better. Not just because things can change at the drop of a hat, and we know that's true, but also because it's you would not lose track of your finances. Once you pay the bills for the month, you wouldn't stop thinking about money, money coming in, money going out. What are you doing long term about your money? You wouldn't turn that off because you know that you can't afford to. Same thing with your career. You know, we always talk about, yeah, I got a house. People that buy a house, shrinking percentage of the population here in the United States because of income inequality and all the trends we've talked about. The real buying power of wages dropping like a stone, off, uh, offshoring, outsourcing, disappearance of manufacturing jobs, and all of these contributing factors to the difficult situation that we are in right now in 2020. But, um, you know, when, when you have a house, somebody buys a house, we always say that's your biggest asset by far, right? It might be a 200, 300, $600,000 house or whatever. And it's a very large and scary chunk of money. But here's the thing. We don't talk about the fact that your career is more money than that. It's more money than your house. It really matters. Not that a career is necessarily all about money, but God knows money is pretty, pretty, pretty important thing. And we don't teach people about how to run a career with the idea in mind that this is your biggest, this is by far your biggest set of financial decisions. You know, how you do your career. And that's, that's you know, part of the sickness that, that we're here to try to help in our, in our way at Human Workplace to contribute to fixing, to solving, right? To, to bringing those problems up and, and then being able to put them in the light of day and solve them. And that's why a tiny little question, oh, I was mentioning, about to mention, when I started writing a column for Business Week a thousand years ago, like 2000 or 2001, um, one of the editors said, man, you like the nooks and crannies. I said, hell yeah, I like the nooks and crannies. Because the nooks and crannies, the little tiny subtopics that people don't really talk about, my favorite thing to write about, they show us, they, they, they illustrate for us the mindset from which these weird interview questions and weird paradigms and belief systems and prejudices and biases and brainwashing that, that pretty much all of us have been exposed to having to do with work and careers and employment. You know, the, the nooks and crannies, the real specific stuff, how we handle it when somebody has to be gone from work for a funeral, for example. Gross, sick, I don't want to get into that right now. We might have dealt with it already. Or if you want to hear about it, write to me and I'll do a rant about that. It's real, real, real bad and not human at all. You've got a relationship with this person. They come to work every day and they work with the team. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, policy is you have to bring a funeral note. But, but in the nooks and crannies is how we see the mindset. Employers up, employees down. What? Actually, no, we run the company. We literally go in there and make the company run. You know, we would, you wouldn't have a company. We have to shake off the brainwashing, you guys. Say employers have all the power. Not really. We have social media now to communicate with one another, 
get the word out, like Black Lives Matter, the movement, everything, the tumult and the change and the opportunity in front of us right now for shifting some of the power and getting undoing some of the hurt and the wrong and the criminality. It's huge. And there's more of us. There's more of us. We are 100% of consumers. We are 100% of employees, contractors, consultants, you guys. We are 100% of the population that, that buys stock. Not, not necessarily now today. It's in the hands, concentrated in the hands of the ultra wealthy. But, but, but how might that change? And of course, we're 100% of people who vote. So let's not forget that. You guys are awesome. This is the Truth About Work podcast. I'm Liz Ryan. Have an amazing day.